Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would open up a Bible to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 3 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. That's where we're going to start Q&A night from tonight. Psalm chapter 3. Psalm 3 is actually not where I had intended to begin originally, but we had a late addition to tonight's set of questions, which means that we will be answering not just the three advertised questions, but actually four questions tonight. About God. This is maybe your first time being here for Q&A. I don't know that that is the case, but I want to alert you that we will not be doing live Q&A from the floor. That's called Bible class. That's when we do live Q&A. Instead, I take questions that have been submitted to me beforehand and get an opportunity to study those out and try to work through some of those ideas and then try to present some some Bible answers to the various uh, queries and quandaries that are on our mind from the folks that are members here, folks that are kids here, and uh, even sometimes from folks outside of this congregation. And really all of the questions tonight have come from a variety of different sources. And all the questions tonight, all four of these, are going to center around the nature and the attributes and the character of our God. We did a whole bunch of questions about the devil just a couple of months ago, and so it seems absolutely right that we would answer some questions about our God tonight. I'm glad that you're here this evening. Hope you've had a pleasant afternoon. It's been a just a gorgeous day, even though it is noticeably getting darker on us sooner and sooner. Very very soon, I think just in a couple of weeks, we will be meeting in the dark of night on Sunday nights, but that shows us that our God's in control and the seasons continue to change and uh, things are as God has promised that they would be. In Psalm chapter 3, I want to begin tonight with this first question that is taken right out of Psalm chapter 3. I want you to read with me in Psalm 3 in verse number 3. That's where this question comes from. There, this is a beautiful psalm of praise. In Psalm 3 and in verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. The question that I was asked was, what does it mean there that God is the lifter of my head? That really is a unique and one-of-a-kind expression in the Bible. You will not find that, that terminology anywhere else in Scripture. And so when we see a phrase like that, it really does catch our attention. In fact, that was, that was the daily, let me go ahead and get down here, that was the daily Scripture post on Facebook's, on our Facebook page for Lakeside this morning, that you, O oh Lord, are the lifter of my head. And that really, I think, is what prompted this question for us this morning. What does that mean? What does that mean for God being the lifter of our heads? Well, if you notice the header there at the top of our chapter there in Psalm chapter 3, your Bible may note that this is a psalm written by David, and that it was written by David during that time in his life, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. We read more details about that in 2 Samuel chapter 50, about how David is fleeing from Jerusalem and he goes up into the Mount of Olives. And as he goes up to the Mount of Olives, he's just trudging. He is downcast. His spirit is just completely down. In fact, in verse 30 of that chapter, we read there that David is weeping as he went. And then the people that are following him, his people, they also are weeping as they go up. This is not what you would expect from the king. Normally out of your king, you've got a man who's going to be leading. He's got his head up, he's got his chin up as he boldly leads the way for his people. And so it is with that setting in that context 
that David, no doubt weary and worn from being pursued day and night by his murder-breathing son Absalom, David writes this psalm. And in this psalm, Psalm 3, David says basically, Lord, I'm just trusting you. He says that there are many, verse 1, there are many who are my foes. And he says that there are many others, verse 2, who tell me that God's not going to help me. But Lord, Lord, I'm trusting you. And I am trusting that you are going to lift my head. That you're going to bring me up from this state of, of depression and sadness and despair that I am in. This feeling of being without spirit. An idea of the lifting of the head. One writer put it this way. He said it signified the movement from despair to hope. And that was David's prayer. That was where David was putting all of his eggs in that basket that God was going to be the lifter of his head. And really when we stop and think about that, that really makes that expression, really makes it quite meaningful, doesn't it? Because many times, probably most of us, We know what that's like. We know what it's like to be down. We know what it's like to have feelings of despair or depression. We know about that. And in those moments, we really can do no better than what David did here. That is to turn to the Lord and to simply say, Lord, I'm going to trust You that You're going to do the things that are necessary in order to, to change the circumstances around me. Or maybe to get to me working on some things, changing some things even within me so that my spirits will be lifted once again and I can serve you joyfully. Go on serving you as you would have me to do. I thought about that phrase a lot. What a beautiful expression that is. I'm surprised we don't have hymns in our songbook about that. I'm going to put Miss Sandy on that. She's our resident poet. Sandy, you get to working on a hymn on this idea of the lifter of my head. What a beautiful thought about our God. Let's turn our attention now to this second question this evening. I was glad that question got thrown in there for tonight. This is a very different kind of question, and I want you to be finding Job chapter 1, if you're still there in the Psalms. Job just comes right before Psalms, because that is where this question originated from. And the question comes from Job chapter 1, and the question is this, and that is, if God can't be in the presence of sin then why is Satan in his presence in Job the first chapter? Well, let's just read that account there in Job chapter 1. This is how all of those trials and afflictions of Job and his family, this is how all of that gets started and originates in Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Of course, if you're familiar with the first chapter of Job, then you know that God and Satan, they have quite the conversation over the course of the next several verses. And so, what do we say about all of this? There's no sense in denying this. It is quite clear that Satan is there in the presence of God. How do we explain that? Well, I'll tell you, I think the problem here is this idea that we think that God can't be in the presence of sin. What I want to ask is, I want to ask, where does the Bible actually say that? You know, I've heard that since I was little. I've heard preachers say that. That God cannot be in the presence of sin. I've looked in the Bible. I don't know anywhere where the Bible teaches that. 
The truth of the matter is, when we study our Bibles, what we come to find out is we come to find out that God can be in the presence of sin. Think, for example, just a couple of ideas. Think, for example, about Moses. Exodus 33 verse 11 says that God spoke to Moses face to face. He spoke to him as a man speaks to his friend. Folks, you can't get much more in the presence of the Lord than to be talking to him face to face. Yet Moses, Moses was a sinner. I know that Moses was a sinner because he was a human being. And yet there he was in the presence of the Lord. And we see that kind of thing all throughout Scripture. Lots of illustrations of that in the Bible. In fact, in the last and final day, the judgment day, if God can't be in the presence of sin and sinners, then how is God going to judge everybody? Because according to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, everybody, all people, we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, the good and the righteous, but sinners also are going to stand before the Lord. They're going to be in His presence. Probably what I suspect has happened here, somewhere along the way, is we kind of just got some terminology confused. I think that's what's happened. God can be in the presence of sin, and indeed God has been in the presence of sin. But what I want us to clarify here is that God can never, ever be in fellowship with sin. And I think that's maybe where some some language has kind of got distorted maybe through the years. God can never be in fellowship with sin. He can never be a joint participant in sin. I hope you know the verse I'm looking for. It's in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, I'm reading here in verses 5 and 6. In 1 John 1 and in verse 5, John writes this. This is the message that we have heard from Him and we proclaim to you. That God is light... And in Him is no darkness at all. Emphasis, no darkness in God. Can't be darkness in God. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. God cannot have fellowship with sin. God cannot be a partner with sin. God cannot participate in anything that is sinful and wrong. God is light. God is the very embodiment of light and purity and holiness, which means that He can never, ever take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Having said all of that, though, that is very different from saying that God can't be in the presence of sin. No, God can be in the presence of sin. He has before. We've seen examples of that. And He will again at that great and final day as He administers judgment. And at that time, He will send people away from His presence, never again to have the opportunity to be in His presence. We're rolling quite fast tonight. There's two down, two more to go. Here we go. How about this third question? So we continue to talk about some of the nature and character and attributes of God. This gets asked quite often. And that is, is there any biblical evidence... That God has a sense of humor. Now listen, when I say that any question is fair game for Q&A, I hope you realize it really is. I'm going to work it in at some point. I'm not kidding around about that. Would you find Genesis chapter 21, please? Thinking here about this idea of God having a sense of humor, I want to answer this tonight by simply saying that I do believe that there is biblical evidence for God having a sense of humor. Much of that comes from our understanding about what it means to be made, for us to be made 
in the image of God. Being made in God's image primarily has to do with the fact that we have an immortal soul. I believe that's the main thing when the Bible talks about us being made in God's image. That we have a spiritual nature to us. That's what makes us different from the, from the animals and the bugs and all of the other things in God's creation. But I do believe as well that when we talk about human beings being made in the image of God, I believe that also includes our ability to experience emotions. Emotions that God has. And to share emotions with Him that other parts of God's creation do not have and they do not feel. Particularly the fact tonight that we have the capacity to feel joy. We have the capacity to be cheerful and yes, even to laugh. And so we read in Genesis chapter 21, this is the story of Sarah learning that she is going to conceive this child even at a very old age. Genesis 21, look at verse number 6. There it says, Sarah said... God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Think about that. Notice there that God made this laughter. You know, sometimes people act like laughter is just this, this bad and horrible and terrible thing. It's like, you know, you need to take that more seriously. And I get that. I understand about that. I just asked Tiffany, I just preached an entire gospel meeting this past week talking about how we need to take our Christianity seriously. And being a disciple, that needs to be serious business to us. But you know, that does not negate the fact that God still made laughter. In fact, if you continue on there, notice in Genesis, excuse me, in the book of Job again, go back to the book of Job, in Job chapter 8 this time, In Job chapter 8, the Bible here talks about how God brings about real joy. And there it says in Job chapter 8, I'm looking in verse number 21. In Job chapter 8 and verse 21, talking, speaking of God here, He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Once again, laughter, this is something that is from God. Laughter, joy. The cheerfulness that comes along with all of that. And I think that says something about the nature of our Creator. The One who gave us and endowed us with those abilities. That we serve a God who is characterized by joy and by happiness and by cheer. And yes, I believe even laughter is part of that. And you should know as well, if you did not already know this, the Bible actually even just flat out says that the Lord, the Lord does laugh. I'll show you just one of those. Look in Psalm 59. In Psalm 59, David here, he's he's talking about the fruitless attempts that the wicked often make and how they make all these plans and they plot evil against God. Yet David says this in Psalm 59, look at God's reaction. Psalm 59 verse 8, But you, O Lord, you laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Some translations say you scoff at them. Now, I realize that that's not the same kind of laughter that Sarah experienced, where you're laughing over something good that happened. This is the laughter of scorn and the laughter of ridicule. But it does show us, if nothing else, that God is capable of laughter. God is capable of these kinds of emotions. And I really do believe, when you start to just stack all this up, I do believe that there is substantial evidence that God has a sense of humor. I've said it before, but I just don't think you can read the story of Balaam and the donkey in the book of Numbers about Balaam and his talking donkey. You can't read that story and tell me that I'm not supposed to chuckle a little bit. 
It's pretty hard not to chuckle at the thought imagining those kinds of things. I think God knew what He was doing when He decided to record that in His Word. In fact, have you ever noticed just how much Jesus, God in the flesh, that when He was here on this earth, how much of His teaching really seems designed to elicit laughter from folks? You ever thought about that? Do you remember that famous passage in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount? That famous verse about judging. Probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. Judge not that you be not judged. Then in the next couple of verses that follow, Jesus talks about why do you, with a little, with a big old log in your eye, why do you try to talk to the guy who's got a little bitty speck in his eye and you're trying to do eye surgery on him? You, you think of, hear, hear him say that and you picture that. And you can't help. I imagine if I was standing there in that audience in that day and time, I probably would have... I can't believe he said that. Yeah, that's a crazy image, isn't it? And we all kind of chuckle when we picture and we imagine that. I believe there is a place for humor, even in the teaching of the Lord. I feel confident in saying that the Lord has a sense of humor because He used it even in His teaching. Now, I realize, and this is where I think folks kind of get a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of God having a sense of humor... I realize that the devil has found ways to pervert humor. But that's really the devil's M.O. The devil finds ways to pervert everything that is good. That doesn't mean that laughter is evil in and of itself. Nor does that mean that laughter does not come from God. Nor does it mean that laughter cannot be part of our lives as we joyously serve God. Yes, even a God that I'm going to say laughs. Record time tonight, folks. Mark this down for the record books. Here we go. Let's shift gears now for this fourth and final question. And this is a question that I'm going to suppose that Christians maybe of of every generation have asked this question. The question is this. What about all of the wicked nations in our world today? Why doesn't God take vengeance on all those wicked countries and evil nations in our world? You turn on the news, and the news is constantly reporting some terrible, heinous uh, abomination that's going on. We think of places like in the Middle East, and Iraq, and in Syria. Or we hear about the threats of evil dictators in countries like North Korea and places like that. And so we ask, why didn't God do anything about that? Why didn't God jump in there and, and stop some things from happening? Or just you know wipe those folks off the face of the planet? And I'll tell you, I appreciate this question. I don't, I don't think it's a person who asked this question. They weren't asking it to try to call God into question in any way. I believe it was a sincere and a genuine question. And the reason that I really appreciate this question is because the Bible speaks to this matter explicitly and directly. Which means that in answering this question, we can just listen to what the Bible says and you don't even have to hear me talk. And the book that I'm thinking of right now is a book that you probably have not went to in a very long time. It would be the book of Habakkuk. Wow, when's the last time you heard a preacher reference the book of Habakkuk from the pulpit? Find Matthew and just take a sharp left. You'll get on it pretty quickly. In Habakkuk chapter 1, let me just kind of get you up to speed here. Habakkuk prophesied to God's people and lived during the year 605 B.C. And if you were a Jew like Habakkuk was living in 605 B.C., man... That was a tough time to be a Jew. Because Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, they were all just kind of playing football with the people of Israel. 
with the province of Judea in particular, because Judea was right in their path. It was right in their way of their quest for total world domination. That means then that the Jews were constantly finding themselves either in battle, or maybe in poverty, or maybe even being deported off to these wicked and pagan lands. And so that brings us here to chapter 1 of Habakkuk. And it brings us to Habakkuk's complaint. That's actually how the book begins. Habakkuk makes a complaint about all of the wickedness that's going on. Not just in his hometown, but the wickedness that's going on all over the world and in all of these world powers. And what Habakkuk wanted to know is he wanted to know this question right here, God. When are you going to do something about this? Do you see what's going on? What are you going to do? Look at Habakkuk 1 verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? How long will I cry to you violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence, they're before me. It's everywhere. Strife and contention arises. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. I think many of us, if we were reading that for the first time, we might think, was that written today? Was that written in 2017? Because that seems eerily similar to the state of affairs in our world in 2017. It just seems like there's just terrible wickedness going around, all around us, all of the time. So we wonder, God, when are you going to do something about that? When are you going to take care of that? Well, God has an answer. God's answer for Habakkuk was, it was, well, very soon, in fact. Very soon we're going to take care of that because the Babylonians are coming. Verse 5, the Lord says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe it told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and their dignity goes forth from themselves. God says, I've got all of this wickedness under control. I'm going to punish the wicked people and I'm going to use the Babylonians as my instrument for bringing about that justice. Well, Habakkuk responds by saying, well, Lord, that's that's good. But but wait a minute, God, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, what Habakkuk's saying is he's saying, God, those Babylonians, they're more wicked than we are. Yeah, we're bad. We did some bad stuff, but but they're worse. Shouldn't, Shouldn't they be the ones who are punished? I mean, come on, yeah, I admit it, we're bad. But those guys are the baddest of the bad. And so, Habakkuk 2, verse 1. After making that second complaint, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post, and I will stand myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning, and what, what I will answer concerning my complaint. What Habakkuk is saying there is saying, I'm just going to wait and I'm going to listen to what God has to say about my complaint. 
And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bend my will and I'm going to bend my thinking to His Word instead of trying to bend God's Word to my way of thinking. And the Lord answers. The Lord answers by saying, I I know about the Babylonians. I know how wicked they are. And you know what? I'm going to take care of them too. Chapter 2, drop down to verse 6. The Lord says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against Him with scoffing and riddles for Him and say, Woe to Him who heaps up what is not His own? For how long? And loads Himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will, those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon, that's talking about Babylon, will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. What God says is He says, Habakkuk, you just wait. I'm going to take care of all of those sinners in Judea. You know what? I'm also going to take care of all of those bad, bad, bad sinners in Babylon too. I will take vengeance on the evil nation. Now, I read that, and I believe that's so relevant to this question and to where we are in the world today. I love the way, I love just the candidness of Habakkuk, just telling the Lord what it is that's on his mind. And I love even more the way that God patiently answers those complaints one by one. Let me close this question out by making some very important applications and observations for us today. First and foremost, as we ask this question, about is God going to do anything about the wicked nations around us? I think we need to start by being very careful in assuming that the United States of America is just so righteous. And that's oftentimes kind of where we begin. That's just kind of where we are when we ask this question. We just assume that we're the good guys. That we are such a good and wonderful, we're the Christian nation. We hear that all the time. And we just think that when other nations, wicked nations, they come and do stuff to us, like, for example, what happened on 9-11, the terrorist attacks on September the 11th, we start asking God, what's up with that? We're the good guys here. Why would you allow the bad guys to come in here and do that to us? We're such a great and good and righteous country. There's not any doubt that the United States of America has been, and I believe still is, historically a great and benevolent nation. I'm so proud and thankful to get to live in this country. Think about it. How many nations do you know of who go to war with another country, and then at the end of that war, they actually help their enemy to rebuild their country? I don't know of anybody else that does that. This nation has done more good around the world, maybe more than any other nation ever before it. And so there's much to be thankful for and there's much to be proud of in all of the good works that the United States of America has done. But let's be careful here. This nation has been blessed, but with great blessing comes great responsibility. It might well be that God chooses evil nations to punish this nation. Maybe because of some things that this nation has failed to do, I'm thinking specifically about protecting the unborn or standing up for the true biblical definition of marriage. We need to give pause about that. and We need to think about that very seriously. But then I want to say secondly as well that this question kind of also assumes that God isn't taking any vengeance on evil countries and evil peoples. 
I'll tell you folks, that's just a wrong assumption for us to, us to assume that, well, God's not doing anything. You read your Bible. You can't read your Bible and not realize that God has always taken vengeance on evil nations of people. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Tyre, Sidon, Jerusalem in AD 70, Rome. God has taken vengeance on evil nations. It is recorded for us in the pages of His Word. And in fact, that didn't even stop whenever the canon of Scripture closed. Fast forward to maybe more recent times. What happened to Nazi Germany? They were wiped off the face of the earth. What happened to communist Russia? They were destroyed and pulled down. God does take vengeance. Let there be no doubt about that in our minds. Let no one ever think or let no one ever say that God is somehow asleep at the wheel of our universe and that God doesn't know what's going on. No, God knows and God has taken vengeance on evil nations. Which means that just like in Habakkuk's time, what we need to do is we need to trust God and we need to trust Him more. In fact, that's probably a really good summary for the entire book of Habakkuk. Trust in God that He's going to take care of evil. God knows what He's doing. I am content to let Him do His job. He does it very well. He knows who's righteous and He knows who's evil. And He knows who needs to be taken down today. He knows who needs to be built up tomorrow. The Lord is running things and He is very, very good at His job. And so let's be careful that we're not trying to look at things from our very limited and finite perspective. Sit back and kind of say, you know, well, you know, Lord, it seems like you ought to get on that. When are you going to do something about that over there? Come on, God, seems like you're dropping the ball here. No. Let's do like Habakkuk. Let's trust God. In fact, I'll direct your attention to one final verse there in chapter 2. Look in verse 4. In chapter 2 and in verse 4, there the Lord says, First part of the verse, he's talking about Babylon. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's Babylon. Then he says to Habakkuk and to Israel, But the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the message you and I need to hear. That's what you and I need to do. We need to have faith in God. Live by faith. Trust in God that He's going to do what's right. That's what the judge of all the earth will do. Now, we have learned, by looking at these four questions, we have actually learned a great deal about the character and the nature of our God. We have learned that He is tender, and that He is kind, the lifter of our heads. We've even learned that God God has a sense of humor. But you know what? We've also learned that God will have no fellowship with sin. He will have no fellowship with sinners. And we've learned here in this last question that God is determined to stamp out and to punish evil. And as I kind of put all of that in the blender, I'm reminded then of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. That's a good note to extend the invitation on. Which side of that equation equation do you find yourself this evening? Have you experienced and you know firsthand in your life the kindness of God demonstrated specifically through salvation in Jesus Christ His Son? Have you grabbed a hold of God's kindness 
And let it be poured out in your life so that you can be forgiven of your sins. If you haven't, then that would put you on the other side of that equation. That would put you facing the severity of God. If you are of an age of accountability and you have not rendered your obedience to God, that is your fate. That is what you have to look forward to. The wrath and the vengeance and the damnation that God has promised He will mete out upon sinners and upon those who choose not to obey His gospel. And so tonight we are asking, will you come to God? Will you come to Him and accept His kind and gracious offer of salvation? All things are ready for you to become a Christian. Are you ready? Are you ready to do that even tonight? We'd love to assist you in being a Christian. Brother or sister, we'd love to assist you in praying with you, encouraging you, doing whatever we can to help you serve the Lord in a better kind of way. The invitation of the Lord is open to you. Will you take advantage of this moment? If so, do it right now while we stand and while we sing.